Okay, here we are. Oh, shit. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. And welcome to the words, the 52nd class or episode in Tom's Talmudish. Now, I must tell you, as we begin, that when you read the Gemara, when you read the analysis of the sages on different words of the Megillah, in today's episode, it's going to seem a little disjointed. It's like almost forced at first. And one conclusion or appreciation does not seem to lead into the next. It seems like just a collection of random teachings. But the more I thought about and contemplated what the Gemara is actually saying, the more the music or symphony started to emerge. And what I hope to do tonight is A, to give you the very straightforward, simple pshat, the actual reading of the Gemara. You should know how to read a couple of lines of the Talmud. But then I want to share with you, along with many, many beautiful commentaries, how it seems, at least to me, that all of this comes together to, to convey a very powerful an important message about the Megillah and about Purim in general. So, with that little preface, let's get right into it. I want to uh, open by introducing to you something about the different verses that are going to be analyzed. I'm just going to present that to you. And then afterwards, we'll start to study the Gemara from the inside. Hopefully, you'll have a volume you can follow along. We're going to be on Daf Tes Zayin, Amud Beis, page 16b. And we'll try to understand the Pshat properly as our sages, as our rabbis illuminated the words and then we'll tie it all together. I'm going to remind all of you that if you have questions that you'd like me to answer in real time, please take a moment to type your question into the live chat on YouTube and those watching on Facebook Live, if you'd like me to notice your question, yeah, you got to switch over to YouTube. And uh, in general, let me just say that if you aren't yet subscribed, and I know that more than 60% of the views on, on these uh, classes on YouTube are coming from non-subscribers, so <laughs> I got to assume that a lot of you are not yet subscribed. Please be so kind as to subscribe. It's very simple. It doesn't cost you anything. And if you enable notifications, you'll always be informed of when we're about to go live so that we can study Torah together. And of course, these classes remain available 24-6. And thank you. I appreciate you joining in. In the ninth chapter of the Megillah, of the Scroll of Esther, we're introduced to that fateful day. So the end of the 8th chapter already talks about the whole transformation. Haman thought that he was going to plot genocide against the Jews, and in a matter of days, 
is swinging from the tallest gallows Shushan has ever seen. And then months go by, difficult months, because many, many people have got the message in a variety of ways. The 13th of Adar, that's the day, the day we get rid of our Jewish problem forever. The Persian Pony Express is essentially reactivated. Messages arrive that it's not quite so simple. The Jewish people's self-defense is sanctioned. What will happen, though, is anybody's guess. So, chapter 9 opens with, and what did happen? We talked about the, the sudden fear, the trepidation, the awe that the Jewish people commanded, the image that Mordechai projected, and all of our enemies kind of slunk into the shadows with the exception of the really rotten anti-Semites. They came out to fight regardless. So a battle ensues and we're victorious. And the Megillah vacillates between telling us the story about what happened in the Persian Empire, a sprawling country with 127 provinces, zeroing back into the capital city or capital district of Shushan. Throughout the empire, one day was enough. They fought on the 13th, no overt miracles, but the whole story is miraculous. And so, on the 14th, they celebrated. Nobody told them to celebrate. It was intuitive, natural. They recognized the hand of Hashem and they showed their gratefulness for Hashem's deliverance by rejoicing. In the city of Shushan, they weren't yet ready to kick back, relax, rejoice. They had a real problem on their hands. So what happened? So we read that the king says to Esther, he says, oh, your people have killed quite a few of those enemies, eh? Like 500 neo-Nazis have been put down and those 10 sons of Haman. What else would you like? And Esther says, well, funny you should say that because we actually need another day. And Achashverosh says, sanctioned. You can defend yourself. Another 300 monstrous anti-Semites are killed the next day and on the 15th day, the Jewish people of Shushan, they celebrate. Now, a year later, Mordechai formally enacts these celebrations as a part of our Yiddishkeit, a part of our Torah Judaism. And from here onward, the Jewish people will celebrate Purim. And after we hear about that enactment, and after we hear about the Jewish people accepting Mordechai's proposition, recognizing intuitively that this is coming from a higher place. There's kind of a, a recap of the story and the enactment. So our Gemara today opens by looking at the conversation between King Achashverosh and Queen Esther. 
And then we kind of skip past whatever else happened in Shushan. We pass over the details of Mordechai's enactment and the letters that he sends, and we, we kind of come to the, the recapitulation where Esther comes before Mordechai and she says, but it doesn't really say she says, somebody says, and the words are funny. And the Gemara analyzes those words and Gemara tells us, well, there's a lesson to be learned. If it seems that the scripture is out of syntax, there's a reason for it. You're not going to catch any mistakes in the Megillah. But you should analyze it because if you will study it carefully, then the lessons, then the deeper messages will suddenly emerge. And that's what happens. So today's, today's episode is like a three-ring circus. Okay, like ring one, act one, is an analysis on the way the Megillah narrates the conversation between Achashverosh and Haman. And the Megillah reads into it. The Talmud reads into the Megillah, pardon me. Act two is the recapitulation and a seeming anomaly. So we talk about that too. And then we hear about the words that are used to describe the actual Megillah. And this too has a lesson. Even though there isn't a specific anomaly or seeming grammatical inconsistency that tips us off. That's kind of an overview of what we're about to learn. And as I said, when we will study this carefully, suddenly you see like a, there's a, there's a thesis here. There's, 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 a, there's like a certain direction our sages are leading us. And it's pretty astounding when it all comes together. Okay, so with this, all these um, nice little beginnings, let us... Let us take a look at the actual words of the Gemara Daftazayin with Beis. We are, I guess what you would say in the bottom third of the page, if you're looking at the original Vilna print in the Gemara, you'll see it gets very wide, the lines get very wide, and then they kind of get a little narrower, we're right above there. The Gemara opens with a quote from the 12th verse of the 9th chapter. The king said to Queen Esther, in the capital district of Shushan, the Jewish people have killed. Now the Gemara doesn't go into the details, 510 sons of Haman. It just says, the, the Gemara just says, so the Gemara says, Omar Rabbi Avohu, Rabbi Avohu said, Melamed, this teaches us, Shabo Malach, that an angel arrived, Ustore Alpiv, and he smacked him across the mouth. Really? What teaches us that an angel kind of redirected a belligerent king by smacking him across the mouth? 
what does this even mean, actually? What, what teaches us? Vayoymer HaMelech, the king said. So the king said, so what? That teaches us that he got a little bit of angelic redirection? It actually doesn't seem to make sense. I mean, like, this, this is a very strange Gemara. So let's take a look at Rashi. Rashi says, Melamed Shabo Malach. It teaches us about an actor who doesn't actually mention. He plays a very powerful role. You know, you can't just beat up the king and get away with it unless you're kind of invisible or an angel. So he's an invisible actor. Nobody sees him. He makes a cameo appearance, but not one that anybody can see. He leaves a profound impact. He changes a monarch's mood. And then he just melts into oblivion. What, what about this verse taught us anything about an angel? So Rashi says, Malamed Shabo Malach Chulu. It teaches us that an angel came. And Rashi's analysis is like this. He began to speak angrily. And at the end of the verse, he says, What would you like? How can I help you? Is there anything else that's uh, maybe of interest? Now, one thing is clear from Rashi. The actual words that the Gemara quotes do not bring us the lesson in living color. The Gemara is merely alluding to a verse. The Gemara is not highlighting the actual difficulty in the verse or something like an anomaly in the verse that serves to teach us. The Gemara is simply saying, you should know that this verse teaches us that an angel came. The Gemara does not say which part of the verse is teaching us. Incidentally, that's uh, rather unusual. Because typically, if the Gemara says there's a lesson to be learned, the Gemara will say, why use this expression? You could have used another expression. In fact, we'll see that later on in today's class. And, and what exactly does that mean? He started angrily. He finished sweet talk. Well, if you start off with an angry talk and you sp- end up speaking softly, it must be because an angel did something to you in between. Like, have you never started a conversation one way and had a change of heart and finished it a different way? I guess an angel must have smacked you. You didn't even know. Like, what exactly does that mean? This is the kind of Gemara that even if you read Hebrew or Aramaic and you can read the words and read the Rashi, you really need to study this. Like, it, it's, it's, it's not actually making that much sense. Now the Maharsha is bothered. He's bothered now. Of course he's bothered. Everybody's bothered with this Gemara. It doesn't seem to make sense. So the Maharsha says this. (laughs) 
Kanida mipirish Rashi. It seems from Rashi's words. Because he said, so, so what is it you want? What is your request? And he says that at the end of the verse. Mashma. The intimation is, that he must have began in an angry tone. And the Marsha says, yeah, I don't know if I really buy into that. He says, I don't really see it. I mean, like, because he said, what do you want at the end? Instead of saying, so what do you want? They already killed 500 people. He said, they killed 500 people. What else do you want? What's the proof? So the Masha says, Rashi's words are not really satisfying. So therefore the Masha adds to this commentary. He says it's, it's not just because the what do you want or what else would you like comes at the end. No, no, no. There's, there's something else that tips us off in this verse. What might that be? So he says, Mimasha the fact that Achashverosh is enumerating, he's enumerating. Now, the Gemara doesn't mention this at all. The Gemara doesn't. The Megillah says, I'll read the verse from the actual of a, a book of Megillah. The king said to Esther Amalko, in the city of Shushan, the district capital, they killed and annihilated. 500 ish men. And then there's 10 sons of Haman. What did they do in the rest of my provinces? So the first thing he says to Esther, what's the other numbers? How many more people did they kill? And, and what's your request? I'm going to give you whatever you want. I'm just telling you what your request is. Do you have any other... Uh, any other asks? Because, you know, you just ask and it'll be done. So the marshal says, why is the king enumerating 500 people got killed? We, we by the know by the way we know that because it says, just a verse earlier. In verse 6 it says, And Shushan Abira, the capital district, they killed and annihilated 500 men. And then we list the names of Haman's sons. That's an anomaly, all right? Well, we talked a lot about that in the last class, in the previous class. So, so, it says, On that day, the king got a report. If he couldn't get a report from what happened in the entire province, it takes time for reports to get there. He didn't have uh, email. There was no WhatsApp. WhatsApp was down. So he only got a, a report from what happened locally. He got a local report. And then verse 12 says, So the king said to Esther, 500 men, 10 sons of Haman. And what else happened around the province? And what do you want? So the marshal says, this whole 
business of the king reenumerating numbers is odd. What exactly was he trying to say? If the king got the numbers, Esther knew the numbers. So what's he saying the numbers for? He's trying to impress Esther with the numbers. He's informing her. If the numbers came to, to the king, they for sure came to Esther. I mean, Esther was involved with this. She had skin in the game. The king does have skin in the game. Esther made it very personal. She said, this is, this is my life. This is my family. This is my people. I need you to understand that. The king says, okay, I got that. You can defend yourself. He wasn't prepared to rescind the original creed. He said, nah, it doesn't work that way. I'll write a new edict. You figure it out. So, so the Masha says, why is he repeating all this? Mashma, the Harbi Hoyabainov. That sounds like that's a, that's a lot of fatalities. That's a lot of casualties. You really needed to kill that many people? So it's so much. The cost. And he must have been upset about that. So he's kind of like telling Esther, you know, you, you people really uh, took this uh, to the next level. 500 people and 10 sons of Haman. I wonder what, what else they did. I wonder how many other neo-Nazis have been stamped out. That sounds angry. But then he says, oh, and um, do you have any other requests? Because if you have any other requests, I'll be happy to try and fulfill them. The Maharal of Prague, in his famous commentary in the Megillah, Or Chadash, the New Light, so he quotes this Gemara, and he says, I think, it seems to me, he says, Ki hukshalai, what really was like kind of bothering the Gemara, the reason that the Gemara comes to the conclusion that Achashverosh was being belligerent, it wasn't just the numbers, he says. Sha'omar hargu va'abed, they killed and annihilated. Now why it says they killed and annihilated, which what they actually did is a good question. But here, Achashverosh repeats not only the number of casualties, but he says, you annihilated these people. You wiped them off the face of the earth. You vaporized them. He should have just said, Haragu, Esther, 500 enemies are dead. You rubbed that 500 neo-Nazis. This is a good thing. Goodness and justice are now free to reign because tyranny and evil, hate and murder have been stamped out. What do you have to add, Vabed? And the Maharal takes this in a very interesting direction. He says, Lashon Ibud, when you say the word Ibud, which means to destroy or annihilate, it intimates a loss. It's like a loss. Achishver said, you know, that was a pity. Did, did so many people really have to die? Or maybe reframe it. Did so many taxpayers have to be taken out? You know, some of these people made some significant contributions. It's a big loss. Abed intimates loss. The Maharal says, Kamoi, for example, Kol Aveda Shehu Hefsid. Whenever you lose something, Literally, you know, like you lose an object. 
Do you know what it's called in Hebrew? A lost object? An aveda. The mitzvah of returning lost object is hashavat, restoration. Returning a lost object. So we're talking about a loss here. There's a kiloyin. There is something that was destroyed, taken away in the world. You guys inflicted a heavy loss. You really made a, a huge gaping hole in the tapestry of Shushanite society. So why would Ahasuerus say that? Why would he emphasize that these monstrous anti-Semites, people who burned with a desire to kill Jews, it was more important to them to kill a Jew than to stay alive themselves. Irrational. An irrational hatred. This is Hitlerite hatred. So why is he, why is he saying? He's going at a loss? That's, that's a loss, Achashverosh? So it would seem, he's like upset with her. You really brought about a loss. You know, this is, a, this is terrible. It's almost kilu mischarat. It's almost like Ahasuerush is he regrets being so benevolent in allowing the Jewish people to defend themselves. So the Maharal says, clearly he was not a happy camper. He must have been upset. And he said, look at that. You killed, annihilated, destroyed. What a loss. All right, so if he's angry and he's frustrated and he regrets the losses inflicted, and then he says to Esther, well, you want to kill anybody else? <laughs> yeah, I'm really upset about this. I don't know if this should have happened. By the way, anything else you want? That's like, hey, dude, you're either happy with this or you're not happy with it. It's not just a change of heart. Either you want these monsters gone, or you like the monsters. You know, monsters are nice. Some people like monsters. He was very comfortable with the haters, this man, Achashverosh. He didn't have a problem with Hamans and Hitlers. He was okay with them. He was playing, he was playing ball. He was doing business. And then all of a sudden he says, oh, one second, can we do anything else to get rid of these people? That doesn't sound cogent. Forget that he was not a resolute individual, that he would change his mind often. This is not just a question of changing mind. He's mid-sentence. He's like upset about something that happened. And he says, well, what else would you like to do? How else can we continue to promulgate this major change in society by stamping out evil? Something doesn't make sense here. And therefore, there must have been some kind of intervention. People don't just change their tune midstream in the middle of a sentence. Nicomara comes to the conclusion. Amalach must have whacked him in the face. Now, let me just say, Amalach smacking somebody in the face is not necessarily what you think in your mind as you've been trained by Hollywood to think that a malach is a person with the little wings clipped to their back and a halo that floats on their head. 
No, that's a person with silly wings and a halo. That's not a malach. It's not. No. <laughs> Why would that be a malach? <laughs> Since when does it say that a malach is a person, but he can walk through walls? And he has wings. It's a euphemism. It's a metaphor. It's not literal. A malach is not a person. In the same way, it's not reasonable to describe the color of algebra. Is it yellow? Nah, it's got to be pink. Yeah, algebra's pink. Now, long division, definitely green. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's long. You, th- you know, you think of it. That's, that's preposterous. Color and mathematical thesis have nothing to do with each other. How, how, how about taste? But they, like, how does long division taste? Like chewing sandpaper? Is it, you know, more like meatballs and spaghetti, or uh, it's like a peanut butter jelly sandwich? What ridiculous talk is that? It's, it's, it's a theory. It's, it's a concept. Theories and concepts are not defined by colors or taste. Now, you can call music sweet, but it's not really sweet like honey or sugar. It's a euphemism. We use language because we have no choice. We want to talk about things. So we use the language that's available to us. An angel is a spiritual force. There's a satan. What do you think? Satan has red skin and a, and a tail and carries around a pitchfork? It's ridiculous. It's a guy who dresses up and goes to parties when entertains kids. That's not, a, that's not a devil. What does a satan mean? A satan means an obstruction. Lusotan loy means that something is there to impede. So, for example, you could see a person who is motivated, upbeat, excited, ready to do a job, but you know that mentioning something, bringing something to mind publicly is going to deflate this person. You know it. You know that these words will literally pierce his heart like an arrow. By the way, you're not allowed to do that. It's a sin in the Torah to use barbed words to make somebody feel uncomfortable. It's an, it's an, it's an outright sin in the Torah. And the Gemara in Masechet Bava Metzi on page 59 tells us that a person who is made to feel like less because of somebody's barbed words, for example, bringing to mind their past failings, that that person, when he cries out to Hashem, those gates are never closed. Another euphemism. There's no gates. You mean gates? Word, you know, you can scream through the fence. It's not, it's not the point. In the same way that a gate would stop a person from entering, there could be obstruction where your communication, your calling out to God doesn't get to God. So the person who you hurt with those barbed words, he has the ability to reach out to Hashem because guess what? God respects and cherishes people's feelings. And he doesn't like when people use hurtful, insulting Barbed words. Speech is a gift. Use it well. Speak words of comfort, inspiration, intuition, love. Don't speak words of hate. Don't speak words of, that are mean, that are spiteful. 
So when we would say that a word like that is sharp as an arrow, and the Torah uses that expression, is it, is it actually an arrow? It's making a point. Malach smacked him in the mouth. Seriously? Like, like you believe in leprechauns? What, what does that mean? It means that somehow he didn't even, he didn't realize, like, it's like a change. All of a sudden he's, a, he's saying things, he didn't, he didn't plan to say this. He had a change of heart, he became a different person suddenly. So he says, all of a sudden, he says, oh, oh Esther, what else do you want? Like, yeah, let's get rid of those bad people. Those are rotten, horrible murderers. We shouldn't have them in, in society. That, that's not a loss. That's, that's a gain. If you can stamp out ISIS monsters, rapists, and murderers, that's great. Our world is a better place for it. So it says, if a malach smacked him, a malach redirected. In other words, there's an otherworldly force at play. That's what this means. And, and it's, almost, it's almost actually not important which word we learn this from. I mean, it's, it's important. The Gemara makes a point. <coughs> <coughs> you know, the Maharal a- adds something interesting. That once we understand this pshat, incidentally, a lot of other things start to make sense. He says, Something else doesn't make sense over here. Esther didn't ask for anything. She didn't say a word. He comes to her and says, What else would you like, honey? Kings don't do that. If you ask, the king will consider and respond. What's he offering for? So clearly, it must be that, that what happened here was there was an intervention. Something, something changed. Achashverosh. No. Anti-Semites don't suddenly become so philosophic. He didn't suddenly become so loving and sweet. It really bothered him that those Hitlerites were gone. He said, these are my best friends. Are you... I, I invited him to the last party. These guys were a lot of fun, you know. And they, and they paid taxes, and they were good. He was bothered. That a person who has pity for hateful, murderous monsters suddenly wants to get rid of them means you saw a miracle just happen. That was not anticipated, expected, or even something rational. There's an otherworldly force at play. So we call that a miracle. Because miracles are when 2 plus 2 suddenly equals 7, but it usually equals 4. It's not supposed to have a different kind of reaction. The point, my dear friends, is this. When you read this Gemara, it's strange. The Gemara like, quotes a piece of a verse, literally a piece of a verse. And, and according to Marsha, the issue was the numbers. Why would the Gemara quote the numbers? 
According to Maharal, it's the Abed. So quote the Abed. It says no. Hargu Ayyuhudim. doesn't say Hargu Ayyuhudim, the Abed. But that's the next word. It's almost like according to the Marshal and the, and, and the Maharal, the very words that serve to teach us that something's wrong, that he was belligerent, are not even mentioned in the Gemara. That doesn't make any sense. Rabbi Avo right away says, Aha, this teaches you there was an intervention. Angelic. Something happened from another world. So Rashi tells us, if you look at the verse, you'll see it's about the beginning and the end. Did Rashi learn the Pshat like the Marsha? Maybe. Did he learn like the Maharal? Maybe. Maybe he learned like both. Maybe Rashi would say that the very fact that the king started speaking a certain way, recapping things, like, like he, he took initiative. The numbers came in, okay. And he's all of a sudden talking to Esther about it. He's talking numbers. Why is he telling you this? He could have just said, Is there anything else you want? The numbers, we know the numbers came in. It says in the Megillah, the numbers came in. So we could have just said, Is there anything else? But the thing is, that's not the focus of Rabbi Avo's teaching. The focus of Rabbi Avo's teaching is, all he's doing is directing your attention to the verse. He says, if you read this verse, you will see that the Megillah is not what it appears to be. Namely, when you read the Megillah, it appears to be a natural story. There's a discussion amongst our sages that we studied many an episode ago as to, so what exactly was the miracle? How do you pinpoint a miracle? And we end up going with, and that night the king couldn't sleep, even in halachic terms, because the custom is that the Baal Korah, the one reading the Megillah, raises his voice on Balailah. But it's not so miraculous. Especially, we learned the Gemara together. Achashverosh had a lot of reasons not to be going to sleep. He was worried. He said, this is not making any sense to me. Clearly something's afoot. He didn't know what it is. He made the calculation that Haman is in the cahoots with Esther. Something's not adding up here. Why wouldn't somebody tell me? If there's some kind of rebellion brewing, if there's a coup at hand, somebody should be telling me. Oh, he says, I know. I can't, I can't figure this out. And he comes to the conclusion, it must be because people don't think it's worth telling me these things. Huh. I bet somebody once did me a favor and I never bothered rewarding him. None of this is actually true. But in his head, that's what Hashem puts in his head. But part of what Esther did was to plant these seeds. So the Megillah reads like a story. There is no moment that's miraculous here. You know, the Rebbe once pointed out that the fact that we get numbers, numbers of casualties repeated in Shushan, throughout the kingdom, and there's not a single Jewish casualty mentioned, is miraculous. 
We see in, in Parshat Matot, at the end of the book of Numbers, there's a discussion about the fact that the Jewish people did not register a single fatality, and it is deemed to be an extraordinary miracle because there is no such thing as a battle in which only one side suffers casualties. There's no such thing. It could be the most extraordinary successful attack. There's always going to be casualties on both sides. It's just the nature of war. Tragic, twisted, sickening nature. Matter of fact. And yet here, there's nothing like that. What does it tell you? It tells you that if you think about it, there was something miraculous going on there, but how do you point the finger at it? At what moment? At what moment? Well, there must be a lot of little moments because naturally the, the, the statistics will tell the story that there's going to be casualties. So here's what I want to suggest. Here's what I want to suggest. I talked about this in, in a previous episode. There's something called in, in yeshiva language a mahalach. A mahalach means like, okay, so this is the way we look at this. This is the word mahalach literally means it's kind of like, this is how we're going to go. The mahalach, the approach here is, is that you have to know that the story of the Megillah is filled with miracles. It's filled with things that if you stop and think, don't really add up. It's like a fantastical story that without some kind of unbelievable orchestration never could have happened. There's just too many things that unfold precisely in the right time, in the right place. There's too many actors who just happen to be somewhere, happen to say a word. It just, it's just too precise. And the only way that that happens, broadly speaking, is when we look at the Gansa Megillah. We take the whole story, you unfold the whole Megillah, and you read, you know, like line after line, column after column, and then you're reading it in order because otherwise you don't fulfill the mitzvah because otherwise you don't, you don't even realize there's a miracle here. So our Gemara says, even something like a casual conversation between the king and queen indicates that there's an intervention going on that there was nothing natural about it. The point? <laughs> the point is, every line in the Megillah is miraculous. Every line is extraordinary. There's like extraordinary event after extraordinary event, but you don't see it on the surface. There, were no, there was no lightning, there, were no, there was no thunder and seas splitting open. No, no, it's, 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 it's kind of like... You'll only notice it's miraculous if you stop and think and say, one second. Say, so here's a king. He's belligerent and angry, and suddenly he's softly speaking. Like, what happened? Ha- Aha, there must have been an intervention. Aha, indeed. Intervention after intervention after intervention. This is the story of Purim. This is the miraculous deliverance of Am Yisrael in their time of need. And the takeaway is not just that the Megillah tells of miraculous events in antiquity. As per the Baal Shem Tavonian teaching, which I've repeated many times, a person who reads the Megillah, instead of reading and translating the word as out of order, 
a person who leads it in the past. A once upon a time that doesn't have any bearing on life today. You missed the point of Purim. You didn't fulfill your obligation. When you read the Megillah today, you have to say, Wow! Hashem is with us. Almighty God is guiding us every step of the way. There's intervention just when we need it. If we look carefully enough, if we have our eyes wide open enough, we'll see amazing things. Do you know it says in the book of Hayom Yom that part of the Aveda, part of the service of Hashem, is to notice Hashgah Pratis, to take note of divine design and how things just happen to unfold. You know, little things. Because nothing is little. Everything is choreographed. Everything is precise. But you have to take time to notice it. You have to realize that life is Megillus Esther. And Megillus Esther is the story of our lives. That's the Mahalach. That's the approach. And this, once you have this approach, we're going to leap from verse 12. We're going to leap forward to verse 25. We're going to be hearing about like a grammatic inconsistency that leads us to some kind of surprising halachic conclusion. But if you approach it with the mahalach, with this, uh, this thesis, with this kind of, vi- and look at it this way, it's so natural. It's like, aha. This lesson naturally flows into the next. So here's how it goes. Let's go back inside the big book. The Gemara now says, if you take a look later on at the same chapter, verse 25, it says, and when she comes, before the king, Omar, Omar means he said, Im hasefer, he said with the book. Let me read the verse to you. So, let's say we take the Megillah. We hear about the battle of Shushan, the battle throughout the provinces. We hear about the original Purim celebrations Throughout the empire, the Jewish people had respite and relief on the 14th. They celebrated a day of feasting and celebration. The Jews living in Shushan, they didn't get respite or relief until the 15th day. So they celebrated then. And the Megillah tells us, I want you to know that because of this, there were different ways of celebrating Purim. It was a different kind of miracle. I refer you to the classes that I gave recently on the Megillah. So those classes explain this. That's why we have different kinds of Purim. Okay. Then, in verse 20, we hear of the enactment of the festival. 
permanent record is established. Mordechai recorded these events. That's verse 20. 20. Verse 21, 22, the details of upholding these days as festive days, days to rejoice and express our thanksgiving to God. That was Mordechai's intention. Had to go. Verse 23, phenomenally. The Kibbala Yehudim, the Jewish people accepted as an obligation what they already started to practice. On a literal level, they had already celebrated Purim the first year or the day after when they had respite. They made a Yom Tif. They thanked Hashem for His miracles. So they, they accepted this. They said, yes, this, this resonates. This is what we should be doing. They accepted everything that Mordechai had suggested to them. Why? <laughs> Why? Verse 24, Cause Haman had planned genocide against the Jewish people. He had cast a lot, and his intention was to demoralize, disorient, terrorize, and then annihilate them. And then what happened? So Haman came before, had this plan, a plan of terrorization, disorientation, and mass murder, genocide, annihilation. But when Esther came before the king, so Esther, he instructed through a letter that this plot of Haman, that Haman had planned against the Jewish people, that it should be thrown right back in his face. And he hung him. And all his sons were hung or gibbeted. All right. So the Gemara says, hey, this is a funny pasuk. This is a little strange. What's strange? The pasuk says, Ubevoya, Ubevoya means when she comes. So when she comes, before the king, who spoke? If she is the subject of the verse, Ubevoya is the verb describing the actions she took. She is the noun, she is the subject. Uvevoya is a verb. And when she came, who? Esther. Where did she come? Lifnei. That's location. Hamelech, before the king. Omar. Omar naturally mean she said. She came before the king. She said. Oh, one second. But it says Omar. And if you see. <coughs> Speak even very basic Hebrew, you know that the word amar is masculine and amra is feminine. Those of you who speak French should be familiar with this. It's a similar kind of thing. So there's a feminine tense. If it's she who said it, should have said amra. The Gemara says, It should have been amra. Omer Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Yochanan says, what happened here is, read the words that are written. There's the written word and there's a red word. Sometimes you use your words. You're reading from inside. And sometimes you're using your words. You're not reading. You're communicating. 
you know, when I teach, I like to read the words. I like to be booky. I like to learn. Here's the books. I'm reading to you. I translate it for you. Let's learn inside, so to speak. It's a yeshivish talk. Learn inside. Read from inside the book. There's a lot of explanations that I give. I'm not reading from notes. I'm not reading a text. I'm sharing with you what the text means, how I understand the text to the best of my ability. Some people can't do that. Some people can only read from a text. There's very brilliant people who will have to literally type out every word they're planning to say. They have to think about what they're saying. They have wonderful ways of explaining things. (coughs) But they have to read it. And some people are they able to think on their feet? It's, it's more natural, it's more dynamic when they're not reading from a text. I personally don't read well from texts. Sometimes I wish I did. <laughs> I have everything planned before. You know, this, there are phenomenal communicators who read from texts and they can think carefully about every single word that they use and their speech is so sharp and so precise and so exact sometimes wish I could do that. It's when I try to use like, like, like notes, it's wooden. It doesn't work. Okay? Hashem gives each of us what they need. You know, the former Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, is probably one of the best communicators in the world today. He's a phenomenal speaker. He reads every single word. If you look carefully at the speeches that he gives at the UN, you see him going like this constantly. He has like three or four words on a paper. He doesn't use a teleprompter. Three or four words, and they're big. You know, after like 50, you can't read so well. They're big. He has a big font 30 or something. And he reads them, and he keeps moving, and, and he speaks so well. And, is, and, and, it, and it's sharp. It's precise. It's exact. I tried. It doesn't work. It's like wooden. The only way that I'm able to convey something in a dynamic and, and inspirational way is if I'm feeling dynamic and inspired, if it's a natural flow. So, why do I have to read it? Why can't I just use words? So what if somebody internalizes the message of the Megillah to the point that he can get up and speak about the Megillah? He can tell the story. He can narrate the events. He has memorized the details. So the words are imprecise. So what? Maybe it would be a better presentation. Maybe it would be more touching. Maybe it would be more electric. So the Gemara is telling us, Uvevoya lefneh when she came before the king, miracles happened. So therefore, Omar im hasefer, say it from the book. Say it from the book. Now I, can't, I want to tell you that these words of the Gemara are almost impossible to understand. If you just read them straight without a lot of contemplation and thought and looking in commentaries, the words of the Gemara themselves they're, they're beyond jilted and stilted. They, they don't even make sense. Like one word doesn't even fit with the next. I'm going to read it again. Then I'm going to show you how it, how it has to be read and understood. 
She came before the king. She said, she said. It says he said. You know why it says Amra? No, I'll tell you. Say it. But only say it if you're reading from a text. Why? This is how Rashi explains it. So first of all, there's, there's, there's two words in here which Rashi takes out. And he says that these words don't belong. They crept into the text. The Ritva defends these words. The truth is, a, a, um, I, I don't know if we're going to go into the Ritva. I don't, I don't, I don't want to confuse you. I want to try to, like, we're going we're gonna to stick with Rashi's approach. So I just want to mention, um, Skippy, I'm not sure what your name is, but um, Skippy wants to know what constitutes a Megillah and does a regular printed booklet count because... I heard not. I, I love this question because it is actually the very next thing we're going to address in the Gemara. But it sounds like just a, like a, a disparate mention of something in the scripture, but actually there's a mahalach, this direction here. One flows into the next. You'll see. It's, it's tremendous. So let's, let's think about this. What was the mahalach? What was the thesis that we introduced, that, that we kind of like extrapolated from the fact that Achashverosh clearly had a change of heart and mind. We said that there was intervention. There's a miracle here. So the Gemara says that later on, Mordechai enacts the holiday. The people accept. Why? Because they understood that Haman meant business. He wasn't fooling around. He was planning to terrorize and then annihilate them. They knew it. It was the real deal. What happened? How did it change? She came before the king. What did she do? She came before the king. And then what happened? Then what happened? (laughs) And then God arranged things should be so inside out that everything worked out beautifully. Let me, let me, let me read the Rashi to you, and, and I'll explain to you what I'm trying to say. Hachi Pirusha. Rashi says, this is the way you need to understand the Gemara. Seder HaMikra Rashi is doing something so unusual. The Gemara doesn't mention any of these verses. I, have to, I actually have to look in the Megillah just to see. Verse, verse, verse. A whole series of verses. There's an order of verses. This is how it goes. The Jewish people embraced the idea that Purim has to be a permanent celebration. They had already begun to celebrate. In other words, they already recognized the miracle. It wasn't just a story. They saw the Yad Hashem. They saw the hand of God. It was evident. It was obvious. They knew it was amazing. Hashem's hand. We see God's intervention. They didn't just make a party because, hey, let's make a party. He said, let's make a yomtif. He said, this is a miracle. We are the recipients of an amazing slew of miracles. We have witnessed the presence of God amongst us, they said. And because we witnessed the presence of God amongst us, it calls to us. It behooves us to express our gratitude to Hashem. 
You know that there was a great man named Chizkiyahu HaMelech Hezekiah. And he experienced an incredible miracle from Hashem. God made an augmented reality sweep across the camp. And they weren't even wearing this metaverse hats. And they thought that they were being attacked from all sides. And a massive army left their gear, left their provisions. And they just ran away one night. It was the night of Pesach. The same night as the miracle of Purim. And what did Chizkiyahu do? He was like deathly ill. And then he got better. And then what happened? And then they went back to living. And when did he sing God's praises? When did he unite the people and say, My dear children, we have witnessed an unbelievable miracle. Never. He actually didn't. And the Gemara makes an incriminating statement. The Gemara says that Chizkiyot was one of the most righteous people ever to walk the face of earth. Bikish HaKadosh Baruch Mashiach, the Gemara says, God had intended that Chizkiyot should assume the mantle of the Messiah. He should be the anointed one, the prince of peace to transform the world. So why didn't he merit what was his shortcoming? The Gemara says, Al Shaloi Omar Shira, because he didn't formally sing Hashem's praises. He didn't acknowledge the miracles. When miracles happen, you have an obligation to acknowledge the miracles. The people had already learned this lesson. Chiskiyo is in the rearview mirror. They learned that lesson. And so, they immediately, they all saw the miracles. It was impossible not to see it. So they sang Hashem's praises. And then, because Ki, because Ki, this is a monstrous guy. He was, he was so powerful. He was perfectly suited to be able to carry out this genocide. And when she came before the king, Omar im hasefer, say it from the book. Mordechai wrote to them, she says, Mordechai wrote to them, Hey, people, you need to make a Purim. You need to celebrate Hashem's miracles. Because Haman had intended to destroy them. And this that Esther came before the king, which is hey, just a story. Esther was his wife, of course. So his wife came and said, hey, hey, honey, you think maybe uh, you don't want to kill my uh, brothers and sisters? You think you could spare my uncle? Oh, sure, honey, no problem. No, no, no. This is a guy who killed his last wife because she didn't want to do a dance in a birthday suit. He's a maniac, a despot, a ruthless killer. You got to say it year after year. Think, think, think about this, my friends. What the Gemara is telling us is that this story, by leaving a hay out, by saying Omar instead of Omra, 
there's multiple messages. Yes, Amar im hasefer yashuv machshavte. Some say it means he said with the book, meaning with an edict that he wrote, that throw Haman's designs back in his face. The Gemara says that we're actually being told in code how we have to tell the story. How do you have to tell the story? The way Mordechai wrote it. Why? Because the way he wrote it captures the whole miracle. Every single nuance of the scroll is filled with meaning. And the only way that you can absorb the full message is with the scroll. Which is like I always say, you can't read the Torah, you have to study it. You can't read the Megillah. The Megillah is not a, a story to tell over. It's a book to be studied. Every word has to be read right. Because the written word and the spoken word can only have full meaning when they come together. Hey, look. Mr. Netanyahu is a far better speaker perhaps than I'll ever be. And he has his method. I have my method. That's fine. He's not speaking Ruach HaKodesh. He's not some kind of prophet. Neither am I. I think I learned a little more Torah than him. The point is not whether his words are precise. He thinks out his words carefully. It's great. He coises, coins wonderful phraseologies. He's been effective, an effective communicator for Jewish people. It's all fine. This is not about effective communication, my friends. This is about conveyance of the real story. And the real story is so profound, is so nuanced, it's so miraculous that the only way it can be told is the way it was written with Ruach HaKodesh, with the Holy Spirit, with the prophetic holy intuition that washed across the souls of Mordechai and Esther. That's what they wrote because that's the real story. It's not just, all right, I think this was a miracle. The more you'll read, the more you'll study, the more you'll delve deeply into the Megillah, the more you say, what an unbelievable miracle. What an amazing series of events. Let us thank Hashem. So the Mahalach is, every word of the Megillah has meaning. A lot of meaning. And by the way, and when you're reading the Megillah, it's, it's, it's a pretty long Megillah to read, and you're not going to have time to study the Megillah. That's why I've been spending time prior to Purim to teach you the Megillah. So that when we listen to the Megillah, the night of Purim, you can say, oh, I remember this, I remember that. And there's a spiritual reality that when the holy words are read from a holy scroll, and we're going to talk about that in a moment, that it touches us because it contains far more than the eye sees or even the ear hears and the mind grasps because you're talking about Nevoah and you're talking about Kedusha. You're talking about Scripture. And Scripture is always more than the sum of its parts. You follow what I'm saying? Like the business of Ahasuerus's change of heart, which is actually clearly indicative of miraculous intervention, that whole thing, that whole discussion, just leads us in a direction to appreciate how the Megillah is so precise. 
So the next teaching of the Gemara is, and that's exactly why, Omar, the words that you say, that you read, have to be im hasefer, from the book. So, okay, could it be a printed book? Is it good enough as my friend Skippy asked? Is it good enough to say the story precisely? Or do I need like a Torah scroll? Is there like some kind of holiness about this? Excellent question. So now the Gemara naturally comes along and the next point of the, that the Gemara makes is, Omar Rabbi Yechanan, this is the time to convey. Rabbi Yechanan says, guess what? Read out loud what's written in the book. Why can't you read it? Why do you have to read it out loud? Why does it have to be a reading? Reading as in words enunciated aloud for all to hear. And you have to listen to every word of the Megillah. Why don't you just give people the book to read? Say, read this book. Everybody read this book tonight. Read every word of it. Read with your eyes. Scan them. Think it. What did to say it? Aha. So now the Gemara continues to drive home the point that the words of Mordechai are called divrei shaloim v'emes. Words of peace and truth. What, what does that mean? Words of peace and truth. First of all, there's some violence here. They killed a lot of people. We just talked about that today. We even got numbers of casualties. What do you mean it's emes? That it's not lies? Mordechai wrote, it wasn't a lie. He wrote the real story. I should hope so. It's scripture. You have to tell me it's words of peace? First of all, it's not peace. It doesn't seem that way. You have to tell me that it's true? Of course it's true. Everybody knows it's true. In that generation, he wasn't like you're writing about something that happened about 500 years ago or even 50 years ago. He's talking to the people. The people who were there, the people who saw it, the people who heard it, the people who lived it. Of course it had to be true. How else would you be able to write something down and send it to the people who were part of this, who lived it, who experienced it, and then you want to say, oh, by the way, you should know it's true. And it's important for the McGill to talk about that. It makes no sense. It's like a no-brainer. By the way, Im HaSefer Rashi says, You have to have a sacredly inscribed Megillah at the time of reading. Incidentally, it is customary, if possible, for people who are not reading the Megillah but even listening to Megillah to follow along in a kosher Megillah lest they miss a word and they can read it from the Megillah themselves so that they fulfill the mitzvah. That's what we're saying here. So what does it mean? Divrei shalom ve'emes. Amr Rabbi Tanchum, Rabbi Tanchum said, V'amri la'adha said, Amr Rabbi Asi, Melamed is a very important lesson coming across here. Shetzicha sirtut. That it's got to be lined. The parchment has to have like, not a, a, a dark line, it's like an indentation. With an owl, like you make it like a small, like a, you score the parchment. Why? Because it has to be ka'amita shal Torah. It has to be like the truth of Torah. What does that mean? Words of peace and truth. He didn't even explain why it has to say the words of peace, especially because 
we just talked about people getting killed. That's not so peaceful. And he says, oh, you know what? This words of truth to teach you that it has to have lines. If it has to have lines, say it has to have lines. I mean, it's like, what? So Rashi says, it means kesefer Torah atzmo, like a Torah book itself. Sirtut is halacha l'mayshu There is an oral tradition, goes back to Moses, that a Torah has to be written with lines on it. This is how the Ritva explains Rashi. Now the Teisves and Menachas has a huge dispute with Rashi about this. They said, no, no, the Torah doesn't actually have to be written with lines, even though all Torahs are written that way today. He says, only the mezuzah has to be written with lines. Only the mezuzah. So Rashi says it's got to be like a Torah scroll. And Tosva says it has to be like a mezuzah. So what? What does it even mean? How is that kamitosa shaltaira? That's like the amitosa shaltaira. So the Tosfas themselves explain what does it mean? What, is it, what do we mean when we say like the truth of Torah? That it says like a mezuzah. What is the message of the mezuzah? Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. It's a declaration of faith. What does the mezuzah represent? What does the Kriya Shema represent? <coughs> when we read the Shema, what are we doing? The act of reading the Shema is defined by our sages as Kabbalah's oil malchus shamayim, accepting upon yourself the yoke of heaven, bowing your head in submission before Hashem, committing yourself to being dedicated and devoted to living with the ideals of Yiddishkeit. What's the point here? Friends, the point is amazing. The point is... That listening to the Megillah is an act of holiness. It's a sacred act. The Megillah itself is a sacred piece of parchment. Like a Torah scroll, like a mezuzah, regardless of whose approach, Rashi or Tesis' approach. The Megillah is a sacred scroll and listening to the Megillah being read is not just hearing a story because if it was about hearing a story, the story could be told by a better storyteller than the reader of the Megillah. And lots of people who are sitting in shul and hearing the Megillah read don't understand one word that's being said. So why would you do that? You want to tell a story, make a a nice movie and let everybody watch the movie. Get a good storyteller to get up there and say, I got a story for you guys, never going to believe what happened. And tell the story in a language they understand. That's not the mitzvah. The mitzvah is to be in shul or wherever you are. Not on a Zoom, not on a YouTube. Listening to the words of the Megillah from a sacred scroll and hearing the Balkaida. It's a holy thing because, you know, when you hear the words, Divrei Shalom Ve'emes, it's not a story. It's words of Shalom. Shalom, the Torah is all about Shalom brings peace into the world. The Torah brings out from within us the most profound, holy spiritual energy, which is encoded into our soul. Shalom. The Torah was given to make peace, peace amongst people, but ultimately it means that the world, we should be able to balance everything. All the moving pieces, all the details of this world that seem to be going in different directions. Synthesis. The Torah gives us the power to synthesize, to bring it together. And when you listen to the words of the Megillah, you should know that it is a sacred, holy, and uplifting experience. 
It's divrei shalom ve'enes. And it all fits together now. Because every single word here is precise. Because there is so much encoded into those words, we could perhaps spend the rest of our lives studying Megillah Sester and still discover novelty. And still learn to appreciate Hashem's kindness and His miraculous deliverance in a deeper, more meaningful way. And ultimately, when a Yid devotes himself to listening to the Gansa Megillah and hearing every word, it's an uplifting, transformative, sacred experience that necessarily enriches us on all the days of the year that follow. And so, my friends, as I conclude today's Gemara class, I want to encourage all of you who are Jewish to make sure that you listen to the Megillah properly and fulfill the mitzvah of Kriyas Megillah, Mikra Megillah. Hear the Megillah. Absorb its magnificence and its magic along with studying and appreciating the incredible profundity that it broadcasts and shares with us. And we can only hope and continue to pray that our world that is filled with so much strife and suffering, so much human catastrophe and violence and horror, that our world will be healed by divrei shalom ve'emes through our Torah study, through our fulfillment of mitzvahs, through our listening to the holy words of the Megillah that convey to us that in every moment and in every place Hashem is with us, Hashem is shielding us, Hashem is delivering us, and that very, very speedily, hopefully before Purim arrives, Hashem will send us His righteous Mashiach and heal the world forever. Bimheira will be Amenu. Amen. Thanks so much for joining. Laila Tov. Agotenacht.